In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary and voluntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Right, folks, we are back. Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. You can check us out every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 1 o'clock in Chicago, 11 a.m. on the West Coast on PRN.FM. Well, welcome back. Beautiful weather here in the Midwest today. Tons of stuff going on in the world at large. And to be quite honest with you, I haven't been paying much attention to it. The last four or five days have been extremely busy with other projects outside of the political realm. And I've been spending the majority of my free time or my reading time with Kim Sipes's latest book. So today we'll be speaking with one of my good friends, professor of sociology, assistant, I'm sorry, associate professor at Purdue University Northwest. Is the new name of the university, I believe? They changed their name. Nonetheless, Kim Sipes will be on the program today discussing his latest book, Building Global Labor Solidarity in a Time of Accelerating Globalization. So, Stay tuned. In about eight minutes, we'll have him on the program. And I want to tell everyone, you know, make sure you go out and get the book. I think the better place to order the book from would be the actual Haymarket site. So you could go to Amazon, and I'm assuming you might get a better deal. And I know Kim doesn't particularly care either way, but I think if you order from Haymarket, as people have told me, um, I probably should know more about this, huh? Just in general, not particularly for this interview or for Kim. But nonetheless, if you order from haymarketbooks.org, I believe a larger percentage of the proceeds goes to the author. Not that Kim's really worried about that. And also, I think you can. it helps to support these local entities as opposed to a corporation like Amazon. And, you know, something we've talked about in the past, you know, but to be clear, I should say, something we've talked about in the past on this program is that, you know, consumer choices aren't going to stop the madness that's going on in the world, whether it be corporate greed, whether it be capitalism, racism, sexism, climate change, and so on. As I've directed people in the past to read Derek Jensen's wonderful article, forget about taking shorter showers. You know, those choices, while they might make you feel better, and while they may be the more moral or ethical choice to make, we can't kid ourselves or trick ourselves into believing that making more healthy 
and just consumer choices will help us build global labor solidarity. Okay. So that aside, Kim will be coming up in about five minutes. I probably should have had him just call in now. But there's what else has been going on that I did want I did want to mention a couple of things, which is why I allotted myself about ten minutes. Well, you know, one of the first things that should be mentioned, and it's been mentioned by many people in the past, and I claim to have no interesting or particularly informed reflections on Muhammad Ali's legacy. I didn't know him personally, for one, for two. I wasn't even around at the time, or alive really at the time when he was most influential. But here's what I could say, and most importantly to me, is that I hope that people will remind everyone there's just so many people out there who enjoy sports. It's probably a side conversation, but I've always enjoyed sports. My problem has been with the sort of celebrity entertainment sporting culture that exists in the United States where people are watching 10, 12 hours a week of ESPN, 10, 12 hours a week of sporting events, and then talking about and reflecting on and using their intellectual capacity to examine and discuss those events. And that's an entire segment of American society. And it cuts across ethnic and racial lines. It cuts across gender lines, although it's predominantly made up of males. Nonetheless, there's a lot of people in the United States who will be talking about Muhammad Ali in the coming weeks. My simple suggestion would be to constantly remind people that Ali was a giant beyond the ring. He went to Palestinian refugee camps. He hung out with poor black kids in the ghetto. He stood up for Muslims around the world. And most importantly, at least in my perspective, because if you look at the history, at least from what I understand, and as I've been hearing about over the course of the last several days when Ali did turn against the war in Vietnam and refused to serve, refused to accept being drafted to serve in Vietnam and he said that no Viet Cong ever called him a nigger but plenty of white people throughout the United States indeed have and that he understood that his primary political enemies were not abroad and this is something that I've tried to mention to just, I mean, most, I think, progressives. I mean, actually, let me back up. I'm learning a lot about so-called progressives, especially in light of Memorial Day. I think I mentioned it last week during the program. So I won't assume anything. So some people have asked me with the program, they're like, Vince, why are you saying things that we already understand? Well, the, you might understand this. There might be particular people who are listening, who understand, but that doesn't mean that the entire audience understands. And that sure as hell doesn't mean that a so-called progressive movement in the United States understands that their primary enemies and the people who oppress them day in and day out 
probably live much closer than they think. Hell, they might even be their neighbors. You know, these are the, this is what Muhammad Ali understood. That is the government. It's the United States government. It's the people I pay taxes to. It's the white business owners whose businesses are down the block from the gym that I train at. It's the white supremacists and the police officers who protect them. This is what Ali understood. He knew. As many Americans are beginning to understand now. That their primary enemies are domestic. They're here. They sit on the 45th and 65th floor in Wall Street, the Mercantile Exchange in downtown Chicago. If that's where these people exist. These are our primary enemies. So maybe that's a decent segue into having our friend Kim on the program. But nonetheless, you know, as we, as we sit here and talk to Kim today about formulating and building global labor solidarity, in a time of accelerating globalization. Think about those enemies. Think about the quote-unquote masters of society. So since the 1980s, the world's working class has been under con continual assault by the forces of neoliberalism and imperialism. In response... New labor movements have emerged across the global south, from Brazil and South Africa to Indonesia and Pakistan. Building global labor solidarity in a time of accelerating globalization is a call for international solidarity to resist the assaults on labor's power. This collection of essays by international labor activists and academics examines models of worker solidarity, different forms of labor organizations, and those models and organizations' relationships to social movements and civil society. Kim Sipes is an associate professor of sociology at Purdue University Northwest in Westville, Indiana. He has previously authored two books, KMU, Building Genuine Trade Unionism in the Philippines, 1980-1994, to from New Day Books, published in 1996, and AFL-CIO's Secret War Against Developing Country Workers, Solidarity or Sabotage, published by Lexington Books in 2010. So without further ado, welcome to the program, Kim. Well, thank you, brother. Pleasure to have you. Okay, I'm glad to be here. Well, look, I mean, Kim and I talk all the time, so we'll pretend, I'll try and pretend like I don't get a chance to speak with Kim several times a week. Um, so we'll methodically try and move through this. And, you know, part of what I like to do with the program is to talk to people about their personal history. Now, with the way that I have the questioning structured, I think we're just going to eventually get to that, Kim. So I, I'm going to go through the book in the same way, or at least your chapters in the book, in the same way that they're presented. And I think by the time we get to talking about specifically the KMU, We'll have an mm -hmm. opportunity to talk about your personal experience, how you became involved with that movement, and how you become aware of those things. 
if that makes okay, sense. Sounds good. That sounds good. Okay, cool. So let's talk about the introduction to the book. So to talk to me a little bit about the inception, who is involved, and how this book came about. Okay. Um, this actually was a follow-up pro- um, project to a uh, academic journal called Working USA. I proposed to them a, uh, a special issue on global labor solidarity. They accepted we got a number of people from around the world to uh, write uh, some quite good articles, and we published that. But we also thought that we would get such, an, uh, such a response that we could turn this also into a book and to allow some of this stuff to get uh, developed further. So my, the uh, academic book, working, or the uh, academic journal, Working USA, came out in June of 2014. And we also got a number of articles uh, submitted for the book and put those together. So what we tried to do, what made this kind of interesting was that we didn't, you know, a lot of times a collection, you go out to your buddies and you say, I know you've got this, I know you've got that, and you ask the, the men and women that you know to contribute. We didn't do this. We shot this out worldwide. We shot it out to uh, to progressive academics, labor scholars, to uh, particular labor centers around the world, such as Kosatu, the KMU. Uh, that's in the uh, South Africa and the Philippines, respectively. We asked for a wide range of people, circulated it out on the Internet, and got a number of articles that came in. And then we chose the... Let's see. The new articles. There were five brand new ones that we 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 chose. We also chose to reprint Michael Zweig's article that had been in the journal. That was the only reprint. But then uh, I added a couple of articles as well as a preface and uh, introduction to the book. So we have some of the uh, widest thinking, most uh, critical and well thought out stuff uh, published in the world. Um, one of the things that's going to be some people will like, some people won't like, is we didn't set any particular criteria. They didn't have to have a certain political perspective. Uh, we wanted to get to find the best things we could out there. So we cast our net as widely as possible. We got some really good stuff. And we put this, we put this, uh, um, this book together, and it came out in April of 2016. Now, you write in that introduction, quote, there are numerous terms tossed around these days as writers try to understand what is going on in the world. Three most relevant for this study are globalization, neoliberal economics, often combined with globalization to create neoliberal globalization, and imperialism. You go on to write, globalization is an ongoing process. Using the term means taking a planetary scope no longer restricting one's analysis to the level of the nation-state. This does not mean that the nation-state is obsolete, irrelevant, and so on, but that we cannot confine our political analysis to just the nation-state level. And then you go on to start talking about and referencing Jan Nader van Petersee's work. Can you talk about this social context, and even furthermore, as you talk about globalization throughout the book, Talk about some of those nuances and complexities and layers of globalization as you do, because I think it's actually one of the most interesting aspects of your work. Okay. Well, one of the things is a lot of people, um, there's been a lot of confusion over the term globalization. 
Now, part of this confusion, I, I believe, is quite uh, conscious, and it's been, it's been adopted in the mainstream media. It's been adopted particularly by the business press. And the idea is this big wave called globalization that's just sweeping all over the world and that nobody uh, can withstand it. So like a big wall of water just going everywhere, just striking the world at the same time, and we're all going to drown and all that. But that's seen as being globalization. Uh, and it's also something that just new relatively last 30, 40 years. All right, well, first of all, we have to, we have to recognize people have been globalizing since the very beginning of human life. So as people would travel out from their, from their various groups to different parts, uh, uh, nearby and then further out to the world, stuff like this, there's been globalization going on throughout human history. It is not a new phenomenon. It precedes capitalism. It precedes the West, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what is new is that it hit a whole new level in uh, about 1980. I think we can tie this stuff in pretty well to the Ronald Reagan years. But at that point in time, we start seeing technology move faster, capitalism develop more, it going into a wider range of countries. But this is not a new process. This is, like I say, this is something that's been going on for a long time. So first of all, we have to realize that Globalization's not new, that it's, that it's been going on for a long time, that it's sweeping over. But one of the things that, uh, Jan Nadervin Peterson writes, and by the way, he's a Netherlands-born speaker, uh, or writer. He's, uh, his last name is a double unhyphenated, a uh, last name, Nadervin Peterson. Uh, I actually studied with him in the Netherlands in, in the early 1990s. Uh, and he's written, the, he's written for my money by far the best book on imperialism called Empire and Emancipation. Uh, which is little known in the States, but it's a brilliant book. Um, but anyway, he had, he's had a very big impact on me. He's now, oh, I forgot to say, he's now teaching at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, but he's trying, you know, his work, and I'm following a lot of it, is that, you know, he's seeing that globalization is not just economics. It's culture, it's politics, it's all kinds of different things. So it's not just economics, it's multifaceted. Uh, he's also he's also talking about it's uneven. So this idea, this great wall of water hitting every place at the same time, is a myth. It's you know we're speeding up, we're connecting with human beings around the world uh, at different times, different places, and things like this. So these globalization processes are very uneven, and this is very important to understand. I think this is a brilliant understanding that it's not just the solid wall of water. Okay, the other thing though. And, and this is what I developed as well, is I think we also have to recognize is that there are two different types of globalization. Now, like I say, the business press and mainstream media want us to think that there's just one thing. It's globalization. It's capitalism spreading around the world, and, and uh, that's all good because we're getting new iPhones out of it and all this other stuff. But what I've seen in my work is there's actually two types of globalization. First of all, there's the type that we can call from the top down. And this is the globalizations being projected by capitalism, by corporations, that, that basically says no, nothing matters except profitability and that these corporations can do no wrong and they're all good and blah, 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 as well as the military forces needed to maintain, to protect them and stuff like that. That's a top-down globalization. 
But what's also not recognized is there's a bottom-up globalization. And these are efforts by peasants, by workers, by women, by students, by urban poor people around the world that are trying to fight a world based on equality, much more mutual respect of working together. So that so you have to see this globalization as two types, the one on top trying to dominate the world, the other one building on the concepts of equality and solidarity, and that that's globalizing as well. And where you really see are the two, the difference in the two values. The top down is domination. We're going to dominate the, we're going to dominate the world. We'll kill anybody that gets in the way. We're going to tear up the planet. It doesn't matter. That's the top down globalization. And the bottom up are people saying, no, we don't want to destroy the world. We don't want to dominate people. We want to work together. We want to build this human solidarity to build a world that's much more equal, that's much more fair, just, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this struggle for economic and social justice around the world. So you have these two types of globalization. Now, that's I think that's a really important uh, point. I'm glad you bring that up. Does it, did that help clarify what I was saying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you make the distinction in in the portion where you're you're speaking about this and explaining this broader social context, or really social contexts, and you mentioned the yeah. distinction between globalization and neoliberalism. Can you expand on that? Because the portion in the book about neoliberalism, for folks who are interested and for people who will eventually get the book, is really interesting as well. And not only is it interesting, it's really packed with a lot of data. So I was really impressed by the amount of information that is packed into the portion on neoliberalism within the introduction. So can you talk about that distinction and a little bit more about these – the the second social context you mentioned, neoliberalism, which leads into the third, which is imperialism. Right. Okay. As far as uh, neoliberalism, basically you have to put this into a context. And that context is the post-World War II United States. Now, at the end of World War II, the world was devastated. The United States was the only industrialized country that wasn't devastated. Um, maybe you could say Canada, but they were basically a subsidiary of the U.S. For, for all practical purposes, it was the U.S. So at the end of the war, the six, our 6% six of the population in the U.S. produced 48% of all the goods and services in the world combined. So in other words, what this means is that if we hit 50%, we would have produced as many goods and services uh, in the U.S. as the rest of the world combined. Didn't quite reach it, but we came pretty damn close. And this facilitated the economic well-being of the United States that lasted from, from 1947 to roughly 1973. But what happens during the 60s and then into the 70s is that these war-ravaged countries such as Japan, Britain, Germany, France, they recover from the war. And as they recovered, they were using the latest technology. Say, like to build their steel industry, they brought in new, uh, more, more technologically advanced, uh, processes while the American steel industry didn't invest, didn't modernize it, still kept using, uh, blast furnaces. Very antiquated system. Uh, so, you start seeing, certainly by the by the 60s, that these uh, foreign corporations are able to compete with U.S. corporations in their country, but by the 70s, they start coming into the U.S. And then later, you see certain corporations from the so-called third world or developing countries come to the U.S. as well. The point being is the world system shifts 
from being a single, uh, uh, an economic and political system dominated by one country to one where it's, there's much more competition, nobody dominates, and the competition is, is very live and very uh, robust. And so along with this, also because of the war in Vietnam and the efforts that Lyndon Johnson made so we didn't have to raise taxes to fight the war, he thought that might turn people against us, he inflated the economy. So by the 70s, the U.S. economy is, is in, in pretty weak shape. Not only is it feeling more competition and it's losing to that competition, but the monetary inflation, things such as this. So what you start having is capitalists, uh, particularly Business Roundtable was founded in 1972 to try to come up and overcome this. And by 1980, the, the election of Ronald Reagan's a, a real watershed. I don't know if people are recognizing this yet, but I'm very clear on um, People in and around the Reagan, Reagan campaign and then became the Reagan administration wanted to put forth an economic program that was going to save the economy over all else. And it basically what they did, they came up with a thing they called neoliberal economics. Now, the key to understanding neoliberal economics is they want total power. They don't want, if, if corporations have unions in them, they want to bust them. They don't want unions around. Uh, they're going to do everything they can to take out labor. And they did. Um, turning, key turning point was the PATCO strike, the air traffic controller strike in 1981, which Reagan brought in U.S. military troops and, and basically crushed the union. And the union leaders uh, peed all over themselves and let him get away with it. But, but the point being is that they were closing uh, excess factories. They were closing anything they could to get rid of unions because they wanted to get them out because unions, I mean, there's all kinds of unions. Some are good, some are bad, and everything in between. But the good ones would stand up and fight for their country and fight for their members. And the corporations did not want that. And they and, and this neoliberal this concept of neoliberal economics is more than just on the shop floor. Basically, it's a set of values that is saying the only values that count in our society is potential for profitability. If something is profitable or has the potential to make a profit, it is good. Anything else is bad. If you hinder pro, uh, profitability in any way, it's bad. So. Um, uh, health and safety uh, requirements, they're bad. Anything restricting uh, limitations on when workers can work, you know, that's bad. Any worker compensation scheme to uh, protect workers if they get hurt on the job, that's bad because that all hinders profitability. And they have been running this crap on the U.S. for uh, almost 40 years. Now, everybody understands that Reagan moved the, the Republican Party to the right. What most people don't understand is this, that the Democrats moved to the right to follow Reagan. And so what we see, and where you can really see this, I hate to admit it because I hate Richard Nixon, but Richard Nixon actually has arguably the most progressive uh, domestic policy, uh, than it, more, more uh, progressive than any other uh, president, Democrat or Republican, that's followed him. So this has been this idea that the only thing that counts is profitability. And what we're starting to see now, which I think is very exciting, is that people are standing up for it. But, um, but that's what I mean by that. Now let's go ahead and shift into the third section on imperialism. Now, 
one of the things that I'm trying to do, and you know, this goes back to my personal history, where I was in the Marine Corps during, during Vietnam from '69 to '73, turned around because I found out it was all lies, uh, and have been researching U.S. foreign policy for over 40 years myself. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that we've got to understand some things about the United States and these things that are not acceptable in polite company. And the first thing is that U.S. foreign policy since 1945, at least, some argue going back to 1898, but let's just stay with 1945 onward, uh, that U.S. foreign policy has been to dominate the rest of the world. I don't care what the rhetoric is, the reality is the U.S. has tried to dominate the world. We faced off against the Soviets. They were the one thing, one force that was countering us for a long time. But we were, we've supported dictatorships. We've overthrown democratically elected governments, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've done terrible things. So first of all, we have to understand that the United States real effort in the world, in the post-World War II period, has been to try to dominate the world. Okay. Now, that also means for Americans, something we've got to recognize is that although we've been taught, you know, the U.S. is just 50 geographic states and we're, we're benign in the world, is one, that's not true. We haven't been benign in the world. The U.S. has been trying to dominate. And second of all, that to really understand what's going on is we have to understand that the U.S. is an empire, that there is a U.S. empire that has been trying to dominate the world. Okay. So what this means is that, and this is where I get into the term imperialism. Now, that's not a word used in polite society, and it's it's quickly dismissed as being rhetorical, but I'm not using it in a rhetorical way. I'm using it to describe empirical reality, by which I mean not all countries in the world have the same um, amount of economic and political power. I mean, if you doubt this, do you think Nepal has the same economic and political power as the United States? No way in hell. Well, the reality is, is the United States has been using that power not only to get its way, but to keep competitors down. And so the U.S. foreign policy, like I said, has been to dominate the world, but to keep other countries subjugated to its power. And so we have to take on, we, we in the U.S. have to recognize that the United States is an empire and that, uh, that our so-called leaders, the elites, et cetera, uh, want to maintain that empire. And so they forced us, I mean, they forced us into spending, I think Obama just signed off on a defense bill this year for about $642 billion for one year. Now think about that. That's more money than almost all the other countries in the world combined spend on, on their military spending. But we spend more than that every year. Okay, now, where it comes to a problem is that means that the U.S. Is, is, the U.S. leadership is forced to make a choice. Either they can support the empire and try to continue to dominate the world, or they can take care of Americans. So they can put money into health care, into education, into infrastructure, into challenging climate change, etc. So they can either do, they can either try to dominate the world or take care of the American people. They do not have the resources to do both. They want to dominate the world. The American people have to decide whether they're going to accept that or if they're going to say, no, it's more important that we take care of ourselves and other good people around the world to build a world of, uh, based on social, justice, social and economic justice around the world.
and within the within your explanation and critique of imperialism and what it is not only as a ideology but how it also operates empirically throughout the world this leads right. into your theorizing of a global labor solidarity because you're also talking in 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 chapter 1 of this work multiple fragments strength or weakness theorizing global labor solidarity you talk about how within the context of empire unions uh, the way that unions operate has been affected the way that unions and their members see the world has been impacted by this context uh, the role that nationalism and militarism play within the context of, of labor unions within the US but also obviously if you're trying to think about building a global labor solidarity and this this leads to an, a discussion that you talk about at length within or write about at length within the book which is sort of a, an understanding of domination so obviously a big part of what you're talking about with the empire is domination and you you break this down into sort of an individual and a collective forms of different domination and how imperialism is multi-layered so can you can you talk about how this leads into that section of the book and when you're talking about domination and imperialism how this affects the way that american workers have not only seen the world but the way that we can operate say as a movement within the country trying to connect with workers all over the world well and you want that 25 words or less right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's one of the things is that what I've been describing that the U.S. has been trying to dominate the world, that we really have an empire. We're not these global innocents that we get told. Is the reality is most Americans do not understand this because we've been consciously lied to. We have not been told the, uh, given an accurate view of history of our country. Um, you certainly see this. I'm doing some work on race and, and the whole system of, of slavery and, and all that. And, um, it's, it's beating me to death right now. But we're not given a true history of this country. We're not given a true view of what's happening in the world or things like this. So we're, we've been taught, and they've used this phrase since going back to the pilgrims, that we're shining light on a hill and all this other stuff. And oh, oh, we're just so wonderful. So we get taught that we're basically, you know, say like, for example, for young men such as myself, and, and, and maybe it applies to you at, at least in some ways as well, is that we're taught that serving in the military is a noble cause and we're going out to improve the world and all that other stuff. And we don't have, we're not given the tools to think critically about that. Is that really true? You know, and certainly I saw during the Vietnam War, and like I said, I lucked out and didn't, didn't go into combat. I stayed in the States all four years. But what I saw was that when the Pentagon Papers came out, that everything we had been told about the Vietnam War, not only was it lied by government officials, including President Johnson, but it was a conscious lie. They knew it was a lie before we went. I mean, just to give you one idea, there were elections that were scheduled in 1956 to reunify Vietnam, which the U.S. allies cut off and the U.S. supported. And the reason, according to President Eisenhower in his own memoirs, was because that the U.S. knew that Ho Chi Minh would win 80% of a fair election. We couldn't have that. Okay. But yet we sent hundreds of thousands over, over the war period, probably millions of American troops to go fight and, and kill Vietnamese and be killed themselves. Um, we haven't been given the truth. 
And so and we're not given the tools in much of our schooling to think critically about what we're said. We're basically fed a bunch of propaganda. And this builds this American nationalism, which makes us think that our stuff doesn't stink, that we're so wonderful, everybody in the world wants to be an American, which, boy, is, is that a joke, uh, things like that. But because Americans don't travel and we don't, uh, understand the rest of the world very well. We accept this stuff. We don't have anything to counter that. Now, what I'm saying is we've got to counter that. We've got to check this American nationalism. We've got to teach our young people to think critically and for themselves. Uh, and in fact, in my classes, I even tell students not to believe myself, even when I'm lecturing. I tell them, look, don't believe a single word I say. Think about what I say. If it makes sense, adopt it. If it doesn't, throw it out. That's an attitude we need to take in working with Americans and teaching them. Now, one of the things, and this goes back, is, is that the development of our labor movement has been very limited, especially since the end of the 1940s. And what happened in the 40s was that the more conservative forces uh, threw out anybody who thought outside their little narrow box. So people that thought of labor as being a sword for justice or fighting for the good of all working, they were thrown out. Now, the supposed reason was they were all communists and they were being rushed, uh, run by Moscow, and that's a lie. There were some communists. That's true, but there were socialists, there were Trotskyists, there were anarchists, there were black nationalists, there were militant rank and file. So the American labor movement threw out somewhere between 750 and a million members uh, in 1940, 1948, 1949. The labor movement has never recovered from this. But these people who got thrown out, they had a larger vision than labor. So what survives is a very narrow vision uh, that, oh, if we just bargain collectively, the employers are going to respect us and pay us and treat us well and stuff like that. Well, if you've been paying attention, especially since the 1970s, you know that's not true. They're trying to break our unions. They're trying to destroy any wage gains we've gained, anything like that. Now, what I'm trying to do in my book is to say, look, folks, there is a world out there. And there are working people around the world that have been struggling for economic and social justice and that we can learn from them. In other words, they're not, you know, you see the care ads and you see the person with the begging bowl. And so you get the impression that all these poor third world people are starving and they're helpless and they're just victims. Yes, some of them are. There's no question. But what we never get told is that there are a lot of people who are heroic, who are standing up, who are trying to find ways to fight back. And I'm arguing that American workers can learn and should learn from these people and these efforts. And so part of what I'm trying to get people to do is to is to challenge their own American nationalism, which they're, they've imbibed themselves and adopted for themselves, and to think out there and see what's going on and learn from other labor movements and see how we can improve ours, because our labor movement is in deep shit. <laughs> we have a unionization rate that's, that's roughly, if not below, the level of 1900. The unions have lost their credibility. They have nothing to offer. Uh, all they want to do in general, as they want more in a time when the economy is changing, when the, when the situation is getting worse and things are getting worse for American workers. And all I can say is we want more. But I'm saying, look, the role of the labor movement is more than just getting more. Yes, that's important to improve people's economic well-being. No question. But the idea of a labor movement, in a sense, is to speak out for those individual workers who are utterly powerless, 
power, power, uh, uh, powerless in a, in a, in a world where the corporations dominate. And together, the labor movement should be speaking out and acting as a sort of for justice for all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. If the labor movement had been doing this over the last 40 years, we would not see the support for Donald Trump. You know, so right, this is right. so I'm trying to get people to understand labor has a larger role. We need to get them to look at it, and they can learn from labor movements around the world, such as the KMU and the Philippines ones that I've studied. So one of the things that you, you mention in, in the book in talking about reconceptualizing what unionism is all about and what being in a union and being a part of a labor movement would mean in the United States and even around the world, but we're speaking, let's say, specifically about U.S. unions right now. When I saw the portion in the book about the motivations of solidarity, so sort of reimagining solidarity where you mentioned that there's like a self-interested solidarity, a mutual solidarity, and then an altruistic solidarity. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about that because as you're talking about unions and the labor movement, you know, I'm struck by how much I hear the term solidarity, but very little uh, in sort of details or an explanation of what it is, you know, people or movements mean when they talk about solidarity and expressing and sharing that with movements, that, say, around the world. Right. Well, and, and part of the reason is because a lot of this, is, it's been such a denigrated term. People say if they click on a on a, a web link that that's they're in solidarity with something. No, I'm talking much more. I'm talking about people, first of all, treating each other with respect, of realizing that there are working people uh, in around the world that deserve, they are human beings, they deserve being treated with respect, and that we should work with them. Now, this is not to say that everything's going to be all fine and dandy once pe- if people just sit down and talk. But I'm saying we've got to create these forms of solidarity, not only with people that we like, but even people that we have problems with. We've got to sit down and try to understand where they're coming from, and we've got to build this trust, and we've got to find ways where we can work together for the good of both of us. Because I think ultimately we get more acting collectively than we do individually. And again, that's something counter what we've been told in the U.S. We've been told, don't worry about anybody other than yourself and maybe your close one, loved ones. Uh, in fact, if you think about anybody else, it's going to screw, that's going to hurt you. And that's what I call the, uh, I, I got mine, screw you, Jack, culture and society that the elites in our country have led us into. And, and I'm saying we've got to reject that. We've got to find these people around the world. We've got to talk to them, and we've got to see how we can work together. Now, when I'm doing this, one of the differences between the U.S. and and particularly in developing countries is labor movements in the developing countries have to unite with other uh, social forces, such as peasants, such as the urban poor, such as the... uh, such as as the um, irregularly employed, things such as this. In other words, they can't act as though they're separate and better or whatever than everybody else, things which the American labor movement has done. Where have you seen the American labor movement stand up with the environmentalist movement to, to say, uh, stand up against XL pipeline or climate change or things like this? Now, in reality, what we have to understand is the American labor movement, like any labor movement, is incredibly uh, multi-layered and that there are folks doing this. But so far, 
those of us on the left in the labor movement have had minimal impact. I actually think we're doing better and we're coming around. There's an exciting uh, project called U.S. Labor Against the War, which built solidarity, which built support, including material support for Iraqi trade unions throughout this whole war. And as you know, a friend of ours, uh, Aaron Hughes of uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War, actually traveled to Basra and, and attended an Iraqi labor uh, conference with U.S. Labor Against the War, uh, which is pretty amazing. But so you've got people in the American labor movement that are trying to build this solidarity, that do not want the unions to try to dominate other unions or ignore other unions, but want to join together and work with people. And it's only by recognizing that there are other good people around the world that we can sit down, we can find ways to work this out, that we can go back, we can educate our members about what's important, what's not, uh, these are things that we have to do, and the Amer much of the American labor movement refuses to do this. And I'm saying we've got to do this. So part of the purpose of me <clears throat> even uh, comprising this, the first the journal and then the, the book, is to get American people to start thinking about the global context. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying ignore the national or the local context and just all of a sudden focus outside the U.S. I'm saying it's not an either-or, whether it's local or global. I'm saying it's both and. We need to build solidarity and work together to support each other on a local level, but we need to extend that to workers around the world whenever possible. So, it's, so rather than a either or, I'm saying it's a both and thing of organizing, building solidarity around the, the, the local and the global for the good of us all. So buy American isn't going to cut it. Oh, hell no. <laughs> okay, I just had to throw some humor in there. All right. So we've got about 15 minutes left. I want to remind everyone you're listening to the Progressive Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. This is Meditations in Molotovs. And we have Dr. Kim Sipes with us today talking about global labor solidarity and his latest book, Building Glo Global Labor Solidarity in a Time of Accelerating Globalization by Haymarket. Check it out. All you have to do is Google it and you'll find it. So one of the labor movements that you are most familiar with in the global south would be the KMU from the Philippines. So can you talk to us about the history of that KMU, your personal history with the KMU as well, please? Okay, sure. All right, now, first of all, let's understand KMU uh, stands for, in Tagalog, it's Kilosun Mayo Uno, which means May 1st Movement. And right there tells you something amazing, because these were, now you have to understand, uh, which we're not, again, another thing we're not told, we can, there's a lot we haven't been told in our U.S. history classes, but people know about the Spanish-American War in 1898. Well, what most people don't understand is that this war also took place in the Philippines, that the U.S. actually invaded the Philippines and conquered that country, and it was a terribly vicious war. The U.S. killed something between uh, 10 and 20 percent of the entire population, men, women, and children. So it was a very vicious war. All right, now, so when the KMU comes around, what they choose to relate to, though, is not that war, but to relate to the progressive struggles of American workers for the eight-hour day, and they focus on Chicago in 1886. And this is where the Haymarket Affair took place. Um, 
1.5 million American workers went out in support of the eight-hour day, 750,000 just here in Chicago alone. Um, a striker was killed. Uh, there was a rally, and police intervened in the rally. as a peaceful rally. Somebody, nobody knows who it was, threw what we'd call a hand grenade today and killed some cops and killed some workers, and four men were hanged. And they were known uh, around the world as the Haymarket Martyrs. In fact, the Haymarket Books takes their inspiration from these from these men. And uh, so Samuel Gompers, the AFL, um, sent a word to Europe, and they decided to make May 1st International Workers' Day, which is generally, as far as I know, is a national holiday in all but two countries, uh, one being Canada and the other, you'll never guess, it's the United States. Uh, Tricky Dick made it uh, Law Day USA in, in 1974, something like that. Anyway, so the KMU, here they're workers in a country that had been brutally colonized by the United States. They choose to honor Americans that had fought for progress and, and global solidarity. So they named their movement the May 1st Movement. Okay. Now, what this was, a lot of people who know nothing about the Philippines, it's a relatively small country, roughly about the size of California, I guess, um, but they think a small country like that just has one economy. And in reality, the Philippines has several different economies. And so uh, they, they're in plantation agriculture, they're in extractive mining, they're in plantation sugar, they're also uh, producing garments, textiles, and electrical components as well. So very much, uh, uh, very much a developing country, but with many different aspects to it. So... Labor movement. You sound a little muffled, Kim. Just to. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me speak. Uh, try to speak closer to the phone. Um, anyway. Um, That's better. So, okay, thank you. Uh, so, anyway, um, labor movements had emerged independently in these different uh, regional political economies, and they decided that they could get together and do more and. Um, and have more power if they united nationally. So they came together in the KMU. All right. Now, <clears throat> the market, this was during the period of the Marcos dictatorship, which the United States, by the way, supported totally, uh, at least up to the very, very end. Um, anyway, so Marcos came down and passed terribly oppressive laws. They jailed something like 69 major leaders, including the top leaders, things like that, everything they could to, to cut off the KMU at the knees. And because the KMU had organized, had educated their members, and had decentralized their organization, it was able to survive these hits. They later survived the assassination of their, of their uh, chairperson, which is the highest striking person in the whole, in the whole labor movement. So they've, they've, they've been able to build under tremendous oppress, tremendously oppressive uh, positions. Now, in 1982, in the, there's an export processing zone in the province of Bataan. For those of you who know about World War II, this is where the Bataan Death March took place. Anyway, they built this export processing zone. Most of the workers were, were young women, roughly 16 to 25 years of age. And in 1982, uh, 54 labor organizers got arrested there. Well, the workers organized in their, in their uh, dormitories and in their factories and ended up coming out in, in general strike. 26,000 workers, like I say, 90% or more young women, came out and launched the first, um, ex, uh, first general strike in any export processing zone in the world. 
Well, they joined, they were part of KMU as well. And KMU played a key role in overthrowing Marcos. The, the idea that just, uh, you had a four day uprising in Manila in 1986, you know, couldn't have happened without these years of struggle and organizing, which the KMU played a major part. All right, now I had to tie myself in. I had gone to Europe in to England in 1983, and I was a working class kid. Never figured I'd get back to Europe again. Was kind of surprised I was there in the first place. So I started going and visiting activist groups across England, and ended up just by sheer luck being turned on to a guy named Mike Press in Coventry, who told me about this this new labor magazine called International Labor Reports that was being launched and to launch it they were going to um they were going to have a conference. I should hook up with them. He made he he got me the connections and one of the people they brought in was a woman named Winnie Lou Perdell. Well Perdell was one of the two women that had led that general strike in this export processing zone. So I'm meeting with her and we hit it off quite well, and she's telling me about this labor movement, and I know what the American labor movement's like at the time. It was deep shit. Um, and so I was fascinated. So I decided as soon as I could get money together, I'd go out. So I went out to the Philippines in January of 19, uh, 1986. Marcos was still in power. This was his last uh, last months in power. And went out and traveled with the KMU. I got smuggled into the export processing zone. Uh, to meet with workers on the picket lines, things like that. I went to Negros and saw babies whose thighs, they were, had mal- malnutrition. I have, I have small hands, but I could put my hands around babies' thighs. It was one of the most obscene things I'd ever seen in my life. But I saw that despite the terrible conditions, the Filipinos were working to try to create this labor movement to make a positive change in the world. Okay, so I was, I was really blown away. Uh, and interestingly, it's, it's very funny because I was with some of the people right on the front lines at the time, and nobody had this idea that 20 days after I left the country that Marcos would follow me. I mean, people weren't even dreaming that. So it's, uh, it's hope that you want to keep hope alive, as Jesse Jackson often says, because you never know what's going on. Anyway, I went back in 1988. I started doing some writing, so I took a tape recorder and... Uh, wanted to try to write about the KMU. But I was, I had access to anybody I wanted in, in the organization, including the chairperson. We'd sit down and talk for hours, and I was recording these, and I was getting incredible conversations. And I decided this was too important that I had to write a book, that these people had given me too much information, that they trusted me too much. I had to do something for them. And, um, the process was I ended up making six trips on 86, 88, 89, 90, 92, and 94. Went up to the Philippines six times, and I wrote this book and published it in 1996. Now, Amazon says they have, they have copies on sale. Uh, uh, it's a little dated, and I'm going to upgrade the book uh, in the next couple of years. But uh, it's, it is available, and available in interlibrary loans if you have access to academic libraries and stuff but trying to see what we could learn from these workers. How could they survive under a dictatorship uh, and in a country? I mean, most Americans don't even think there's, don't even know there's a labor movement in the Philippines, but they, and they and let me mention, Kim, let me, let me just mention real okay. quick, the book that, that Kim's uh, referring to is KMU building genuine trade unionism in the Philippines, 1980 to 1994, for those who are interested. Go ahead. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, thanks. And you've got anyway, about the, the, three minutes left. 
Okay, thanks, Rob. Anyway, uh, the point being is that uh, most people don't know there's even a labor movement in the Philippines, and yet the KMU in my study, and I've been studying labor for over 30 years and trying to build international, the uh, global labor solidarity for over 30 years, for my money, KMU is one of the most advanced labor movements in the world. I think there's tons that we can learn about them, things about their approaches to trade unionism. They're not just about collective bar- bargaining. Yes, they do that, but they also understand that you're not going to change the conditions on the shop floor or in workers' communities without challenging the, the social order of the whole country and the imperial political economic networks that the Philippines is enmeshed in. So these people have a global vision of what trade unionism can be, and I think that's something we need to learn from. We learn from them that they educate all their members, not just shop stewards, not just staff, but every worker. They have a one-day education program that they can produce, they can, they can share on picket lines even that will teach workers about exploitation and oppression and put it in terms that they can use and that they can understand it. They have organizations, uh, what they call alliances, where not only are unions related to other unions in their particular federation, like here in North America, but they cross union boundaries. They, they unify with other unions in the same area, which gives them more protection from militarization. It gives them a chance to educate other workers. These are all things we, we can learn. They, they show us how to they, they show us how to unite with, with other groups such as women, uh, such, such as urban poor, such as students, such as youth, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they also have a, 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 what they call an international solidarity affair where they're consciously trying to build global labor solidarity. They invite workers and, um, and workers and union leaders to come to the Philippines each April and May to celebrate May Day, but to come out, and the heart of the thing is not the formal uh, uh, processes or even the marches in Manila, which are phenomenal, but to get you out into the provinces, to get you to meet ordinary workers, to go to the work sites, to go to the picket lines, to go to their communities, to talk to ordinary people. And one of the things, uh, I guess it's a good thing, but one of the benefits of U.S. colonialism out there was that most, almost all Filipinos speak English. So right on. Right on. Well, thank yourself. you. Hey, Kim, <laughs> building global labor solidarity in a time of accelerating globalization. We were just speaking with Kim Sipes. Check it out. Haymarket Books. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. Check us out here every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. I'll see you next week.